On the Empire Podcast this week, the Smaug levels are rising as we get our teeth into the second part of Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy and talk to two of its stars, Luke Evans and Richard Armitage. Plus, yes, we can hear you, Matt Berry. The star and writer of Toast of London drops in for a chat. All that and much, much more on the Only Movie Podcast that is simply delighted with the revelation that the super volcano underneath Yellowstone Park is twice as big as previously thought, which means not only are we all doomed, but that Roland Emmerich has to go back and remake 2012. Win-win, I think. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. As ever, I'm joined by a trio of people who frankly weren't doing anything better. That's a lie. We're impressed today. We could all be doing something better. Anyway, I was going to be joined by just one colleague, but splitting everything into three is all the rage these days. So, first up is our Queen of the Geeks, a woman who's forgotten more by Talking Dragons than most of us will ever know. It's Helen O'Hara. Hello. How do you feel about this Yellowstone revelation um it's a little worrying i'll be honest mm. I, I do want to go there um someday i, w- I would like to see Didn't it. you go there i went to yosemite yosemite yeah and and that gave Different. me a taste for wanting to go to yellowstone but yeah. I, I would clearly be taking my life into my hands well i don't think it's going to blow up with that warning well so i think we'll, I think we'll be okay I've seen tw- 2012 there wasn't much warning there wasn't much warning we're we in danger of giving them an idea for yogi bear three where <laughs> he stops the caldera yeah. That's all right. That's Jellystone. Jellystone, completely different place. Okay. Uh, you just heard him there. He's our art house guru, a man so dedicated to the art of subtitles that even now he's working on subtitles for this very podcast. Just press 888 on your camera phone or podcast listening device now. How's that working out for you? It's, you have to press wheat, 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 wheat. Oh, wheat, wheat, wheat. I forgot about that. Sorry, wheat. Uh, and last but not least, is the ever bouncing, ebullient podcast editing machine that is. Mr. Alistair, sorry, Sir Alistair Plum. Hello! Hello, Alistair. Or to do the sign for voice. Hello! <laughs> la, la, la. Can I just chip in and say I'm still recovering from yesterday's astonishing art house quiz that you put together for me? Should we put some context to this? Yeah, yeah, do it. Uh, Phil uh, had a birthday yesterday. Happy birthday, Phil. Thanks. Happy birthday! Happy birthday. Uh, what we usually do in the Empire office when, when people have birthdays is uh, I compile a speech for them that usually involves a quiz revolving around their surname. Phil has this frankly silly surname that uh, means you can't really test him on it because there aren't many descendants out there in the world. So instead, I came up with a an art house round of quiz up that we played live with Phil and his brother Nick. It was and how, how was it, Phil? <sighs> It was, I'm, it was I'm, very I'm tense. still tense thinking about it, it right so now. It was so tense. I'm really, I'm exhausted today. I'm a shell of a man. I think it could be because of my advanced years as well, but also <laughs> because, um, did you couleur blanc de blanc? Yes, <laughs> as I'm liking to call this thing. It's an astonishing um, uh, quantum leap forward in in birthday quiz technology. Give people a sample of the questions. What, be, what, tri- what tripped I've, you up? I've, I've what tripped me up? Um, I'll, I'll tell you what tripped you up. Uh, wait, it'll come back to me. One of them was. What, what, this is embarrassing what won best foreign film this year yeah I idea. completely forgot yeah apparently it was Amour it was Amour yes Amour. Uh, and uh, how much were the wages of fear in the wages of fear I got that one right though you got that one right but yeah. that was that was a good question the, the order of the three colours trilogy yeah. tripped both you and Nick you didn't specify was it was before or after tax that is true but neither did they in the film red, orange, green it is red, orange, green yeah. as it should be as it should be. Uh, but yeah, I think if Alexander Armstrong you know, falls into a pit or is imprisoned in a dungeon near my flat, I'm not saying like, I don't have a dungeon in my flat. <laughs> I keep it near my flat for, mm-hmm. for uh, you know, tax shelter purposes. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm available to host Pointless. I think most people have Already used the word pointless yes. in, in relation to <laughs> me over the years. So yeah, why not? 
Why not? Okay. What's okay. pointless? And what's who's Do you not know what Armstrong? Is? Alexander Armstrong. Is he the guy from Armstrong and Miller? Yes. Yes. And he was uh, he was severed from Ben Miller, and he went off to do a quiz show <laughs> called Pointless, which started out as a daytime uh, thing on BBC, and uh, has now turned into this phenomenon. It's it's huge. It has you know the celebrity version, it has a primetime version. It's just it's massive. And the idea is that you have a category, and then you have to. Uh, it's essentially that. Family fortunes thing, and we we surveyed a hundred people, and they said this. So they they have a category that's like Coldplay songs, and you have to name songs that won't that people won't have said. So you have to get the pointless answer. Oh. So you wouldn't say Clocks by Coldplay; you would say oh. a deep. So the opposite type. of Family Fortunes. Yeah, kind of, but it's still yeah. got a Family Fortunes tinge. They wanted to call it Family Misfortune, but they oh oh yeah. So you want to hear them go that noise? You want that? No. No, you don't. Anyway, um, anyway, let's come back to this. I feel we've gone off the beaten let's come back to this. a little bit. Sorry for that pointless debate, everybody. That We will get on with the podcast right now because it's time to tackle your questions. As ever, you've been sending them in all week via Facebook, uh, Twitter, and email. Uh, let's start with the Twitter question. This is from at RichardBud41. He asks, which sequel is most guilty for basically remaking the original? Home Alone 2 seems the obvious example. The second most obvious would be one that you should be aware of. Evil Dead 2 kind of sort of remakes the entirety of Evil Dead 1 but then does add a lot more to it at the same time oh well remakes Evil Dead 1 in the first five minutes and then Evil uh, Evil Dead 3 remakes kind of both movies but essentially Evil Dead 2 inside the first three minutes it's a nice little it's a nice little way of doing a recap I would say arguably of, of the three there's about one movie in there oh yeah, but it's, why it's are the, you baiting it's him? the uh, best movie ever made so why are we even having this discussion why, why? Let, let's move on from that one shall we I'm going to put forward Shrek because every single Shrek movie including the sort of half hour Christmas and Halloween specials basically has the same plot which is that Shrek is grumpy boots and decides he wants to be alone and then realises that it's nice to have other people around too yes. every single one yes all of them yeah good point I'm thinking about James Bond I'm thinking about Bond <laughs> in a good way unlike Helen he's thinking about it in a bad way very bad way Bond um, has specific examples of when they take the same plot beat I mean obviously there will be Super Spy James Bond versus Big Bad Guy. Hot girls, fast cars, special gadgets. Like, that's something we all know about, right? Yeah. But when you have A View to a Kill, that's quite a lot like Goldfinger in its structure. Then you have Die Another Day, which is almost exactly like Diamonds Are Forever. That one is intentional. Other ones are just strangely similar. It kind of cannibalises itself over and over and over. And on Her Majesty's Secret Services, the one that sort of stands out as doing something completely different. But otherwise, they do seem to kind of re retrace the same formula and why not I guess why not with those sorts of films but then a film like a born a born sequel has a has a, a overarching arc which takes it forward in different directions as well so or Star Wars I noticed yeah. some similarities between uh, Never Say Never Again and Thunderball really? I don't know if anybody else has spotted that no. but there were a, well, revolutionary a few touches oh there. hang on the guy who played James Bond in Never Say Never Again mm. looks a lot like the guy who plays James Bond in Thunderball yeah but he had some kind of prosthetic crinkly makeup yeah or something he's know. much more Scottish and never say never again than he is in Thunderball <laughs> as well I'll, you know, I just love yeah, I just I almost wish that Connery kind of did try an English accent uh, as Bond in his early years and then I love how he just gives up never say never you know he's in that he's in that phase ah that fuck it phase where he just does whatever he wants <laughs> he's been in a fuck it phase for the past 40 years <laughs> you're Sean Connery yeah precisely you can you can afford well, to do that why not why not I mean lots of sequels do it The Hangover 2 especially I think 3 yep. they tried to do something different but 2 is very much a replay and it, this may be controversial Chris but Taken 2 let's be honest 
It's not that different from the first one. Except no. the family's involved, and it's in a foreigner. Oh, no, it is no, the same. No, it isn't. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting, because you, you want your sequel to feel like the first movie, but some of them do absolutely just retread it. Home Alone 2 is, is one. Die Hard 2, to an extent, even has that line, that famous line, how can the same shit happen to the same guy <laughs> yeah, twice? Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you up the ante, I'm happy I enough with that. Well, if, you, if you kind of push it a little bit further, like you look at the Jaws movies. No, okay, I'm not happy with that. But Godzilla, for <laughs> example, uh, which we'll get onto later, like you just take the same construct and you just throw more at it. It's a robot Godzilla. Look, it's a flying pterodactyl mm. the size of Manhattan. You know, you don't really begrudge at that. But things like Meet the Parents, then Meet the Fockers, I can't really excuse that. And also uh, Star Trek Into Darkness and uh, Wrath of Khan yeah. pushes classes up those. It's one of the reasons why uh, I'm such a big defender of Ocean's Twelve, because that that goes out of its way to do everything that you wouldn't expect a sequel to do. Uh, it, you know, even as it, it locks up its main characters for the big heist at the end, which is just one of the, the things that, and obviously gets criticised for the whole Bruce Willis, Julia Roberts um, cameo thing yeah, halfway through. But <laughs> I like it. It takes risks. At it's fun. It's, it's playful. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, Ali, with with that, that y- you have to up the ante. But I think the problem is when you keep doing that and it all gets just ridiculous I mean I think that's especially true of action movies where they're, they're tied to some kind of real world limitations of space time and physics mm. um, and and you get to a point where you can't go any further like Fast and Furious 6 suffered from a bit of that this year because you can't go much bigger than Fast and Furious 5 without getting really really stupid um, and I think to an extent most action franchises suffer from it at some point so I think then what you want to do ideally at some point is you need somebody to come in give the whole thing a good kick up the butt and and do a you know either completely change genre in the way that the Alien franchise has, mm. has occasionally done or you know at the very least you know reinvent the tone in the way that say Fast and Furious 5 did um, or even and I can't believe I'm bringing this up but like the Step Up franchise has kind of changed the way it approached the films during the time it has I can't believe you're bringing this up I know I know I'm so sorry but it went from being a sort of you know two-hander you know teen love story to being some kind of weird group zeitgeisty trying to be thing which at least you know you've got to give it credit for trying Mm. although not for succeeding horror franchises are quite guilty of this aren't they like paranormal at the moment just seems to be making the same film over and over again and there's no diminishing appetite for it either it seems uh saw is a bit the same isn't it so uh, at least reinvented no so yeah, saw saw. reinvented well, i'm saying that having times. not seen any of the saw films <laughs> good good excellent no saw has a but, incredibly complicated uh, narrative it's not just a simple it's not just a case of of remaking the same film over and over again if you if you look watch all seven films it's extraordinarily complex is it yeah. well, i, I apologise to all concerned Good. Sorry, good. everyone. Sorry, Saw I'm people. not saying they're good, necessarily. I thought, you but, know, I have a soft spot for the first uh, three. But, yeah, it, mm. it's not It's not just a case of... A hard and warty spot for the yeah. last... However many other... How many other? 800. 800. No, only, so only seven. Only seven, this, which is quite restrained for a horror franchise. This isn't a new development, though, or a relatively new development. I'm just thinking the Magnificent Seven franchise. They kind of remade the same film more than once. Mm. Yeah. Really, yeah. it's a formula. They wanted to get big stars doing heroic things in the West and they just wanted to do it again afterwards yeah and everyone wanted to see it I suppose so it's been around for quite a long time and those visible um, Dirty Dozen sequels and I was just going to say the Dirty Dozens Laurel and Hardy didn't exactly reinvent the wheel each time although they did usually trip over it each time so I suppose there's that Smurfs 2 was interesting this year because the first movie was was a knockabout animated uh, family film and the sequel was a dark sex comedy, which I I was wow. surprised. Yeah, at. Michael Fassbender I thought was 
very, very brave to be in that film. Yeah. Um, was he Papa Smurf? I, the, the level of nudity <laughs> in that movie just took me by... Hang on. Uh, oh, no, wait. Mm, no. Are you thinking of shame? I might be thinking of shame. Yeah. I hear that they're Good doing uh, Albert Camus' L'Etranger as the basis for the third, <laughs> which which will see most of the Smurfs locked up and questioning the meaning of life for about an hour and a half. That would be amazing. Like the audience. I, I would so watch that. Hell is other Smurfs is the tagline. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Okay, we're moving on now to an email question. This one is from Paul Millward. It's a very long question. He goes, after watching Old Boy, I've realised I really cannot stand Charlotte Copley as an actor. Oh, that's not fair. That's not fair. Even though I like most of his films I've seen, (laughs) he's ridiculously over-the-top, whole bacon sandwich worth of hammy actor, and yet everyone else seems to love him. So I was wondering if any of you had any opinions on films, actors, directors, that you think you were the only person to hold that opinion on. What I, I guess this means, someone who's universally beloved, or a film is universally beloved, and yet there's someone in this room who thinks it sucks. Oh, a film as well. Yeah, he's mm. well, film actor director. He says. I think the people I dislike as actors that kind of kind of get under my nerves a bit and mix my metaphors with a big spoon uh, <laughs> are um, are the ones that kind of everyone is 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 ragging on, and it feels a little unfair to poke them again. But I can, if you like, uh, Catherine Heigl. I wouldn't necessarily want to spend a whole dinner party with uh, David Spade. Uh, I don't. I don't love. And Toby Maguire, though he can be brilliant sometimes, I find with Toby Maguire he's kind of like you have to spend fifty minutes getting into the Toby Maguire zone, and then you get used to him on screen as part of the the rest of the ensemble or, or whatever, and then you go, okay, I'm fine with this. But for the first fifty minutes, you go, oh, he's so Maguirey. Get into his zone. That sounds like <laughs> the world's worst sci-fi concept. It's a post-apocalyptic wilderness, the Toby Maguire zone, and you have to cross. <laughs> Anyway, I've lost my train <laughs> of thought. You have to cross something. Yeah. <laughs> you cross stuff to get there. You really are getting old. I agree with you about. I know. I agree with you about Tobey Maguire. Actually, I feel about that way about him as well. And his Spider-Man uh, best bud slash love interest cousin like, dance isn't my. I guess it says you know the the question is about are you the only person to hold that opinion? So this is the I hate Star Wars thing or the mm. uh, is there anyone here anyone here who dislikes. Jason Statham. I mean, can can we imagine such a person? What? No. No, no such person exists. Uh, for example, I'm not a huge fan. I think Phil, you have you, you feel the same way about uh, Jay Bar- Baruchel. Jay Baruchel. Jay, Jay Baruchel. How do you pronounce his name? Baruchel. Do you want really want to know? Yes. Banana. Jay Banana. Yeah. Phil, how you know? I've been accused of being a Jay Baruchel bully just banana. in the last few days. Banana. Yeah. And that too, actually, weirdly. Um. I just feel like bullying a bit because he's so he's kind of small and, and um, you know unthreatening but I'm not a fan at all of Jay Burchell I find him really whiny and irritating as a screen presence yes but I think a lot of people feel that way so that's, yeah, that's, I don't that's know really the answer to the he's a very nice person in real life I, I thought, know, you know? Which, is, which is very disconcerting but yeah. yet uh, in films like Cosmopolis Largely, this is the end, and I can just tell from oh, seeing the trailer of Robocop. It? She's out of my league. She's out of my league. Yeah, Oof. I just want to pretty much drop a wardrobe on him in every single um, <laughs> every single film he's done. Even How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, no. Mm. Willow. No. Yeah. Willow. That would be a much better film if Hiccup had just been crushed by a wardrobe. You five are in. a mean man. How to Brain Your Dragon Rider. Oh. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of Leslie Mann. I don't know if that would make me put me in a minority you know Helen's looking at me weird wow I just find her really sort of her screen presence passive aggressive and, and, and just kind of unnerving I find your screen presence passive aggressive thanks Chris <laughs> 
I used to feel like I was on my own in in being a Keanu apologist, but uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of people are kind of coming around to my way of thinking on that. Yeah, and then along comes forty seven running. <laughs> Shut up! It's going to be I'm awesome. Kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know. I I genuinely I I not only love Keanu, but I think he's he's underrated. I think he does, um, I think he does what needs to be done in his films, to an extent that you can't do if you can't act. If you know what I mean. Yes. I don't think you make those films if you can't act. And you take that one to the bank. <laughs> but for example, I mean, no one here thinks, I'm just plucking names out of the air, no one here despises Hugh Jackman, can't stand him, doesn't want to watch a film with Hugh Jackman in it. What All kind right? of person would feel that way? Only a, a serial killer. That's right. He's, Jeffrey Bloody Dahmer. He's kind to puppies and raises money for charity and, you know, hugs children and such. What a git. Sorry, Paul Millward, I don't think we can actually answer that question uh, to your satisfaction. Uh, let's move on to Dan Blackburn with another long email question. In a time when every great terrible movie or uh, novel concept is being turned into a franchise with sequels and prequels galore, what standalone film would you like to have been given a sequel? And he says, I'd have liked to see another Prince of Persia you mentalists uh, and instead of Monster University surely Incredibles had a wealth of material and great characters to use or maybe even a sequel to The Losers The Losers nobody wants a sequel to The Losers I like The Losers <sighs> I was... hey my unpopular opinion hey perfect <laughs> which is like in a film everyone hates hey you turned it around and said anyway yes question answer go uh, I would put on this list some movies that end with errs uh, <laughs> sneakers, rounders. Yep. District Niners. They've been trying to make a rounder sequel for a long time. They've been talking about it. True Lies uh, mm -hmm. Jumper. There's those. There's... Really? You really want to really? see the Jumper? I really kind of want to remake a Jumper, is what I actually want. Yeah. I really like the idea. I really like the idea. I thought his execution was terrible, but there's, there's, a, there's something there. There's a daydream fantasy, the Jumper fantasy, which just kind of taps into something in my brain, and I find myself thinking, hey, what if I could do that? Is this just because you like jumpers? I like jumpers and jumping. I suppose there is a connection Christmas jumpers there. would yeah. be good. Yeah. Like so you want a sequel to Jumper Santa and Claus Sneakers? Fall. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much working in the whole wardrobe there, aren't you? Yeah. Is there a film called Trousers? The Wrong Trousers. The Wrong Trousers. Get a sequel to that going. Well, there kind of was one, wasn't there? Really? It was a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think if we ignore uh, the Mask Two, I think the Mask could have easily had a sequel. That'll go well with your jumper and sneakers. Yes, it will. Uh, or will it? I'll be, I look a little like a serial killer at this point. <laughs> you might do. Um, this, you won't be able to do anything with this one, but this is another Urs movie, uh, which is Master and Commander, uh, which was just, we've talked about this before, but it's incredible that it was even made, so I'd love to see if it would yes. even be made mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. again. And again, this is one of those ones like Jumper, which isn't really a, I want a sequel for it, but I'd almost just like it to be done properly, which is uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, mm. It's not even that like I dislike the cast. Uh, it's just that, again, there's so much potential, and there's that another daydream thing of you know what if Dorian Gray, you know, was part of this team, and I just like that idea. And uh, Serenity, I could I could see if anybody actually watched that film, a sequel would have been well received, certainly by me. Amen to that. We do have uh, there has been a few oh, sorry there have been a few movies over the last few years uh, where the the film hasn't done well, but then has done very well on home video, and it's obviously then garnered a sequel usually comedies Austin Powers and of course Anchorman is about to come out that didn't do that well the first time around it's about to get a sequel I think it's going to be huge uh, so you never know mm. but I think Joss Whedon's in a different place now I think we, we know about Serenity it's not going to happen yeah I don't yeah. think so okay. I think that ship has, has flown off into the sunset I mean a couple of those they talked about sequels for a long time uh, True Lies is something that they talked about on and off over the years um, and actually, in the, in the question, I mean, they mentioned The Incredibles. That's something that there have definitely been discussions about at Pixar. 
Brad Bird's talked about it, but, but has said, you know, until we are absolutely sure we have a, a killer concept, then they're not going to touch it, which is, the, I mean, is inarguably the right decision, but we'd just like them to come up with that killer concept already, please, and thank you. The Monsters thing is an interesting example because I felt like the Monsters sequel, whilst prequel rather, was whilst fun and diverting, mm. didn't, it made the mistake of, I think what was great about the, about Monsters Inc., it didn't take with it, you know. The central, the central concept was so brilliantly put together and conceived, and and it, it, it didn't benefit from having that. So any of those films that have that kind of central, strong central conceit, I was thinking the Adjustment Bureau is quite fun. That might lend itself. To I a love nice the Adjustment Bureau. The idea of the, you know, where you could take these doors. And, and then and then there's a hat for Ali to wear with his mask. I was going to say the Adjustment Bureau. You could put sneakers and you could put your sneakers in too, along with your um. Your mask and yeah, what else? Uh, me out. And my boots. I've forgotten. And my jumper. Jumper. Yeah. Your kinky boots. Kinky boots can have a sequel. <laughs> I'd also would like to see another movie in the world of the Fifth Element. Obviously, the Sixth Element would make perfect sense. I'd watch the Sixth Element, uh, and also, of course, History of the World needs a part two. Mm. It yes. does. It does. I love uh, Master and Commander as an idea, and I know that we've discussed that on this podcast before, but. It will never happen, but that would be great. And there's a wealth of material for them to use. So someone make that film, please. Maybe somebody will make Temeraria instead, which is Master and Commander with dragons. There she goes, the talking dragons again. That's right. Uh, I'm I'm not going to contribute much to this because you can pretty much guess what I'm going to say. Evil Dead. Event Horizon. Event Bloody Horizon. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be interesting. And for a long time, every time a, a talk of a sequel to John Carpenter's The Thing came up, I was kind of quietly rooting for it because even though it has one of the great endings I do want to see Kurt Russell as McCready come back and kick some more alien butt and I would like to see something like that I know Frank Darabont was working on a a, a sequel that was going to be on the uh, I think it was on the sci-fi channel and then it all went south that led down the road it eventually led to the the, the prequel but maybe one day <laughs> went south to Antarctica it went south yeah <laughs> it's clever it's clever uh, and of course Kurt Russell you know, the hair is a bit grey these days, but, you know, he hasn't aged. Apart from that, just dye his hair black, he could still be R.J. McCready. Do you want him to escape from somewhere else as well? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on now, obviously, if you want to send in questions to us, we're on Twitter, at Empire Magazine. Please use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or we won't see it. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine, of course. Do give us a like. And you can email us, podcast at Online. Okay, time now for our first interview of this week's pod. If you're a fan of British comedy, this guy will have been on your radar for some time. He first made a splash as part of Garth Marenghi's Dark Place and The Mighty Bush before moving on to the IT crowd. He's now the star and writer of his own Channel 4 sitcom, the gloriously surreal Toast of London, and he's also the owner of one of the finest voices in showbiz. He is, of course, Matt Berry, and he came in to talk to Nick DeSemlian and myself earlier this week. Uh, we are delighted to be joined in the Empire Pod booth by Matt Berry, star and writer of Toast of London. Hello, sir. Hello there. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm good, good, good. Thanks for joining us on a Monday morning. Um, I have to say, Nick and I are huge fans of Toast of London. You're very uh, kind. Uh, and it just got a second series. It did, yeah. Yeah. So where were you when you heard the news? Uh, this time last week, I was just getting out of um, Blackfriars train station. Do you know Blackfriars train station? Uh, yeah. the new one that's across the... Across the Thames, it's it's actually really good. Anyway, um, I just come back from uh, rehearsing for Vic and Bob's new sitcom, mm. which I've now done. So they told me, but they did this thing, which I think they found very funny, which I found less amusing, which <laughs> is the uh, 
Simon Cowell approach of you know sort of breaking news. Oh yeah. So I had this whole um, uh, hi Matt, and I thought yeah, yeah. Um, I thought oh god here we go. And they said <laughs> um, I'm afraid to say, and I was like, just do it. <laughs> and they said that you'll have to do it all over again next year. <laughs> Which I then thought was hilarious. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, there was already some some pretty crazy stuff in the first one. Is, is there stuff that's even more kind of extreme that you, do you feel now you can, you can go a bit wilder? Even? Well, I don't think it's that kind of crazy, which is a good or a bad thing. I'm thinking largely <laughs> of the Bruce Forsyth uh, riff, which <laughs> yeah, I, I I found hard to I forget. I kind of we woke can... up, I had a weird dream after I watched that episode. <laughs> I know, I gave a lot of people nightmares that one. The um, uh, we can't deviate I mean we've been told this we can't really sort of deviate from the tone and the format mm. you know for instance we can't take him into space or whatever mm. which is something that I wanted to do <laughs> Toast of Space that would be nice yeah so uh, yeah you know we've got to keep it you know kind of sort of looking and sounding the same which is fine because you know that's you know it is the show you know that you know we both kind of wanted to make so that's good news for us Mm. Um, where did the uh, the idea for the uh, the Bruce Forsyth, the Nigerian lady who gets plastic surgery, which makes it look exactly like 1970s Bruce Forsyth? Yeah, well, it had to look like 1970s because if it looks like Bruce Forsyth now, it's just a guy with bits of real white hair <laughs> <laughs> and just like an old man. We had the same discussion with Andrew Lloyd, you know, with Andrew Lloyd Webber yeah. from the back. How <laughs> you know if you do him how he looks now, it's just an old guy, you know, with like you know, sort of like grey hair looks like everyone's dad mm. so he had to look like he does when he's at his peak if you know what I mean mm. yeah so it was 1970s Lloyd Webber as it was Bruce Forsyth <laughs> that was the reason why it's you know and that's how I think of him as being yeah. 1970s do you think Bruce the real Bruce may have this may have reached him word well, of the it's funny you should mention it because we filmed Vic and Bob in Elstree in Studio 9 and next to that is the George Lucas studio where mm. they do Strictly Come Dancing mm. so we've been in the same area and I met his <laughs> PA but I didn't mention it I don't want to you know what I mean I would imagine he's still you know quite kind of powerful so he'll come you after know, you I don't want to wind him awesome. up just yet I remember I took a picture of that whenever the, uh, the uh, episode was on TV and tweeted it Oh, right. So, you know, this is it, it, it's phenomenal makeup, but it was just one of the funniest things I've seen in a long, long time. Yeah, well, it kind of well. hinged on that. If that makeup hadn't have been as good as it was, it wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And we didn't know. So it was just like, oh, God, this has to work. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. we're in trouble. Yeah. And it was all right. It worked out. So um, the interesting thing about Toast is that even though it does uh, have quite surreal flights of fancy and, and quite surreal things like, like happen like that, the Bruce Forsyth thing, it seems to be rooted in a certain kind of reality. A lot of things in the show happen to you or um, certainly in terms of uh, how actors I remember reading an interview where you said that, you know, it, it's about how actors respond to other actors' success so. yeah that is just things that I've kind of noticed and I mean he's not you know he's too aware of his you know kind of you know kind of you know sort of career and he thinks he should be a lot you know kind of further up than he is whereas I'm just kind of lucky to be doing <laughs> as far as I'm concerned so there's no kind of similarity you know like you know sort of between us there isn't as far as we both do lots of voiceover yeah so a lot of the things that kind of happen to him you know kind of taken from things that have happened if you know what I mean so do you have a real life Clem Fandango they're in every recording <laughs> studio there's one of those in every one I mean there really is and I mean like, I've never lost it in one but I've been in a voiceover with another actor who has lost it 
and it's intense because it's a small area and it's a small area over there as well yeah yeah it was quite something and it just stuck in my head you know and that's you know where a lot of the ideas of bloody hell what happened can you say and he just didn't like what he was being told he was being you know kind of directed I didn't give him monkeys because it was you know an in and out thing and it wasn't anything you know that anybody you know would kind of hear yeah I didn't think so it didn't bother me but he was he was quite concerned with being told how to you know sort of pronounce certain words and in the end he just kind of like you know sort of like flipped and uh, <laughs> yeah I'll never forget it it's hilarious you obviously have one of the most majestic if not the most majestic voice in, in show business no 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 I'm way down the list <laughs> Um, Tom Baker's got the most. Okay. Oh, by the way, have you heard the Tom Baker meltdown yeah. type? Yeah, that's amazing. I, was that's, I mean, like, he was doing that in every job, I think. Around <laughs> yeah. I was curious whether you, you kind of, you know, you have a special drink that you, you have to or warm up at exercises or anything like no, that. Do you just go nothing. in and just yeah. talk? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's no secrets. There's no secrets. I don't think it's that good. You know, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, I'm just, you know, always, you know, kind of glad, you know, and kind of, you know, sort of. You know, kind of like surprised to be paid, right? Each time, yeah. Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, particularly. I, I love your voice in that and the, the way it's kind of out of sync. That was ten years ago. I that know. Was, that was the first thing I ever did. There's an event happening next month. Is there? Uh, where they're screening the whole thing at a cinema in London. Is there? I didn't yeah, know that. and and Matt's coming down and doing a talk after. Good on him. Um, I was curious when when the four of you were last in a room together. Do you see those guys? Yeah, I mean, I saw Rich. We did. Um, um, the last IT crowd together, yeah. which was like a month or so ago. Mm. Okay, that's when it was broadcast. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's it strikes me as is I can't believe it's ten years since Dark Place, and mm. it seems to be striking you as equally strange. Yeah, yeah. And that was the first thing you did. How did that come about? Were you, I was doing music and thought that's what I would do. You know, the best I thought that would happen would be that I'd be dropped from several record labels. I thought, you know, if I do that, that's all right. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just like doing songs. And then I ended up doing songs uh, before the Boosh went on, because mm. I knew Noel. Then I ended up doing rude ones, because, you know, I, it was, you know, a comedy show type thing. And it just went from there. And then Matt and Richard came down and also did stuff and kind of said, you know, if we, if this thing we've just done in Edinburgh, if it goes to TV do you want to play this Spanish doctor and I was like you know I'm doing no yeah you know I was <laughs> you know on my ass at that point so mm. you know yeah that's you know where it all came from wow so in, in terms of uh, you were very much finding your way I guess as, a, as an actor for that one no I wasn't oh. finding no I didn't necessarily want to be an actor yeah. no I was just you know I just didn't want to work if you know what I mean yeah yeah you know so doing songs and you know and I was working in the London dungeon you know and I was like temping Anything, you know, to not do some kind of, you know, sort of career-based sort of nine-to-five thing. Right. That was just the plan. It was about what I didn't want to do, I think, then. Yeah. Working in the London Dungeon sounds like an interesting job. Was it an interesting I job? loved it. I loved every minute. Yeah. I was there for a year, I think. Um, yeah, because I'd done pretty miserable temp jobs. And, you know, I was in a room, you know, kind of sorting out people's parking fines, you know, and I was doing... Um, um, Tele sales, you know, where the as soon as you finish one call, another one gets pumped straight in. It's yeah. awful stuff. Um, and then a mate said, you know, there's some 
auditions, you know, kind of happening for the London Dungeon. You know, you get to kind of, you know, sort of like dress up, you know, and kind of muck around all day. <laughs> you know, it sounds right up your street. And I was like, yeah, yeah. So I went down, did an audition, which I kind of sort of, you know, sort of like made up on the spot. Because I didn't, you know, I hadn't really done auditions, you know, before that. And then, you know, I got the job and then that was it. I was in there. I was in the dungeon. What were you dressing up as? Well, you do different things during the day. So, say, in the morning, you'll be Jack the Ripper. In the evening, you'll be the judge. <laughs> I'm Jack the Ripper this morning. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, then you have lunch, you know, then you're the judge in the afternoon. This sounds like a sitcom <laughs> in itself. It's well, be- it was good. I mean, you know, might put might put taste in the dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> and you've kind of you've kind of infiltrated movies in, in a weird way, because you, obviously your voice was in Moon. Um, I mean, you know, you've got to look very kind of carefully, but I'm there yeah. with Benny Wong. Yeah, mm. and uh, uh, in the film Dread, which came out recently, oh yeah, uh, yeah. the the snuffbox theme tune yeah. turns up, which I haven't heard you talking about that, but because well, I don't know much more than that, you know, right. it's um, the director liked the show and wanted to feature it in some way, and that's how he did it, I think. <laughs> so in the future, that is a big big hit. <laughs> it's like a, maybe it's yeah. a, a track that survives. Are you personally responsible for the character names, or did, did you spit? We ball both do. More? We, we yeah. both love, you know, love, you know, love people's names. Like um, Arthur's always been into that. Like his Noel Early in Father Ted, which is one <laughs> of my favourites. Uh, and it just so happens, you know, that I'm yeah. equally into those kind of names. Ray Purchase. Ray Purchase. Yeah, I I had that one quite a while ago. Ray Purchase and Cliff Promise <laughs> were. Yeah, ones that I had a couple of years ago. And Clem Fandango seems to have Clem almost Fandango become the show. Arthur's. That seems to almost have become the catchphrase for the show. Is I that know. something you've experienced to people now? Yeah, it wasn't the intention. I saw <laughs> Edgar Wright tweeting it the other I day. I know, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was you know kind of by no means the intention. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's... Uh, we had uh, Daniel Radcliffe on the show last week. Uh, which makes uh, so you think he's in some sort of Potter thing? I'm not quite sure, but um, which makes you the second person in a row on the podcast to have guested on the Duckworth Lewis Method album. Oh right, okay. Uh, both albums, actually. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the uh, Duckworth Lewis Method. Um, yeah. How did that come about for you? I've known Tommy for years, mm-hmm. uh, and Hannon. Tommy asked me to be on the first album, spoken word thing. Mm-hmm. I'm. He wasn't very kind of. He wasn't very sort of clear with you know like what he wanted to begin with. He said, just do some spoken word stuff over this song, Night Watchman, I think. Uh, Mason on the Boundary, you're on. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, no, but it wasn't originally. It was Night. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, was, you were on Night Watchman. Oh, okay. I was supposed to be on that. Oh, okay. And he hadn't sent a script with what he wanted, and that's what he's meant to do. So I just improvised this stuff about, you know, about making love, you know, in the... Um, whatever you call the shed where you put the scores on. I can't remember what it was. Yeah. Like totally unsuitable for that sort of album <laughs> and they were you know like Plight went yeah but it's just not quite what we <laughs> and then they obviously you know then it became Mason and that speech and then yeah and then the new one yeah and I was supposed to be on the front cover of the new one really uh, well not my face my this this area just below my belt right okay <laughs> yeah um, but they couldn't do it because of uh, a Wishbone Ash cover which was too similar so it was shot, and it was all kind of ready to go, and it had to be with you know like withdrawn at the last minute. <laughs> yeah. In favour of the uh, the streaker. Yeah. Picture that they've used. Yeah. So somewhere out there, there's a picture of. No, they it, use your, it for the single. Oh, it's okay. on the single. On oh, single. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I should check that out. Yeah. yeah. 
And you've you've uh, you've been in not in concert with them, but I, I saw them a couple of years ago at the uh, Royal Festival Hall, where you you came on and performed Mason yeah, on the Boundary. So that's right. Uh, is that something that you know you, you just like to turn up and just do your song and well, off um, you go. Tommy's band Pugwash. Yeah. I mean, they came on tour with us this year. You know, they're coming on tour with us next year. Okay. I wanted to ask a little bit more about Gotham Reggae's Dark Place. Not okay. And we have a cast member in the house. Um, it's whenever there's a conversation about TV shows that that finish before I, we feel people feel that they should have. Right. That always comes up for me. Anyway, mm. um, do you feel that there should have been more of it? I don't know. Uh, probably at the time when we found out that we weren't going to get a second series. Yeah, I probably would have said then. Yeah, but I looking back. I don't know. I think, you know, I mean, maybe there's enough. I think it's quite expensive as well because it was shot on film. Mm. And there was no fake film then in those days. Like, it was ages ago. But there was, <laughs> yeah. you know, there was no... Well, I mean, there was, but it didn't look great. Right. You know, and, you know, I mean, Richard was very keen that it um, looked like film, you know, so, yeah. you know, we kind of had to use film. I don't think that's a, a reason why I didn't come back. I mean, like, I don't know. But, um, I mean, the, the fan base has grown and grown for that, That uh, I feel, anyway. So I've heard, yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you look back, was that a fun experience it making was, it? or was Yeah, because it... it was the first thing, you know, I ever did, yeah. You know, I loved every, you know, I mean, I loved every minute of that. I'd never done anything like that before. You know, you got to kind of, you know, sort of dick about, you know, and be paid for it. <laughs> you know, wear masks and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, you know, I had a, you know, I had a rattle time. I feel like the song must have been a highlight, shooting the, the kind of the music video. Yeah, where you were... in my pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that was good fun. Yeah, yeah I loved it. Uh, you saying that you, um, you don't consider your voice to be that great? Well, no, voices. but like, I don't hear it how you hear it because it's in yeah. my head. So for me, yeah. it just sounds like you know, like a mm, you know, like a low tone, annoying. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> but. Um, you know, it is. You, you're always popping up, as you said, on, on voiceovers and on commercials. And I have this thing where I'm, if I'm watching a advert break, uh, I try and guess the voice behind yeah. the commercials, and it's either mostly either you or Peter Surfin. Which well, you say that, that seems to be the case. No, but I tell you something for nothing, because um, I also do that, and a lot of times, well, fairly recently, since I've been very busy, you know, like mm. not being, you know, like not being free sort of during the day. I hear a lot of things which I'm told are me, yet I know they're not. Really? Yeah. And I'll get texts going, I just heard you doing whatever advert, and I say, that wasn't me. So there's some... There's an imposter. There's a cat out there who is, uh, <laughs> who is doing the voice, and, uh, and there's another guy who's doing it, but not doing it, you know, I can kind of tell. A shadowy cabal of mass sounder like yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that alone tells you that the you know, unless I'm, yeah, mad and can't you know kind of you know remember being in these rooms, but <laughs> it isn't. There's a few that you know I've been you know that have been you know brought to my attention, which are not me. Well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in. Um, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank Cheers. you. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thanks, man. Matt Barry there. Now, ordinarily, we'd take the opportunity to tell you about the release of the film or the DVD that our guest was here to plug. But what's the point of having a guy with that voice in your pod booth if you don't let him use his instrument, so to speak? So take it away, Matt Berry. Hello, this is Matt Berry telling you to buy the Toast of London DVD, which is out now. Certificate 15. There's F's and Jeff's and two C's. Don't let that put you off. Okay, movie news time now. 
That was a weird way to say the word now, but anyway, let's move on. Uh, what, what do we have? What do you got? No. I've got the excuse to play this. Oh. Godzuki. That's amazing. Right. A Godzuki movie is in the works. It's being no, it's not. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Uh, it's not really news, but it's just that the Godzilla trailer arrived, and it is great. So please go and see it. It's um, yeah, it, it, that beginning of the Amazing Spider-Man two trailer we saw last week, where he is flying from presumably some kind of plane type thing, and he's hurtling towards the ground is uh, kicked the curb by the Godzilla trailer, which has about, I don't know, 12, approximately a dozen, um, soldier-type men jumping out of a uh, plane, trailing red smoke as they fly into this huge, smoky morass of a metropolis. And lo and behold, right down beneath them is this gargantuan beast called uh, Gonzuki. No, called Godzilla. And um, it's just a great trailer. So go take a look. Definitely. It is a good time for trailers, as is traditional just before Christmas. All of next year's big films are suddenly releasing. That's what Santa's um, doing at the moment. That's what Santa's bringing us. <laughs> he doesn't work on toys anymore. He just cuts trailers. <laughs> it's oh, the oh, Edge oh. of Tomorrow trailer. Thank you, Santa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Ho, ho, ho. I will add some Inception Brahms to this bit. Ho, ho, ho. No need to thank me, children. Uh, yeah, it's... it's. Um, I really like that trailer. I really like that yeah. trailer. Uh, yeah, it's, it sets it up, um, but doesn't explain too much. Doesn't uh, doesn't explain anything about the beast, where it comes from, the origins of the beast, or or really give much of a clue at any of the huge city leveling action that Gareth Edwards, mm. who I think is going to prove himself the real deal with this after Monsters. If you haven't seen Monsters, check out Monsters. I think this this film could be could be something special indeed. And, you know, people people are obviously using this this movie to rag on Roland Emmerich's version, rightly so, obviously. But let's not forget. That that movie also had a cracking. It had an amazing trail with the with the fisherman on the, the fisherman, wharf. Yeah. Oh, that was amazing. It also had an amazing uh, tie-in theme tune from Jamiroquai. Anybody remember it? Yeah, yep. deeper underground. Ooh, too much panic in this town, said J.K. Yeah, mm. yeah. So he's going deeper underground. It doesn't make any sense because That's he just gets squashed. Yeah. What are you doing, mm. Jacob? Well, as it turns out, I mean, you can understand why he didn't know that in advance. Well, also, he's an idiot. Well, he didn't get the note. Look at his hats. Uh, Stupid JK. We've also got, in a very brief roundup, uh, a series of. This is a very sequel heavy podcast, but let's just go with it. Bad Boys 3 is in the works. Uh, the Safe House writer, David Guggenheim, is uh, on scripting duty, so that is in the works. There is no Michael Bay attached just yet. Any thoughts, or should we move on? I don't. <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, yeah, well, well said. Beverly Hills Cop 4 is back on track. Uh, Brookheimer has made a new deal with Paramount. Attached to direct is Brett Ratner. Attached to star is... Eddie Murphy? Correct. Hey! Uh, so this was after the success, not really a success at all, uh, TV pilot, which didn't quite work, where uh, Foley's son, uh, this was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, uh, didn't, didn't, didn't like... You know the uh, green light is world on fire. Am I right in thinking that never made it to air? Has that pilot not been seen, apart from Suits, uh, whichever company it was? As far as I'm aware, I've not seen it. Yeah. If there's a man who would have seen it through some nefarious means, it would have been James Dyer, but I don't think I have. So um, no, it's it's interesting because that uh, that was worked on by Sean Ryan, who was uh, uh, he's worked on the Unit and the Shield uh, previously. Is is very very good guy. So uh, or you know he makes very very good shows. So I'm I'm. Intrigued that one didn't quite make it. Apparently, the scuttlebutt was that Eddie Murphy overshadowed Brandon T. Jackson, who was cast as a lead a bit too much. And he is, uh, you know, it's the presence, Eddie. Give, give him that. Is he going to play different members of the Foley family? 
I hope so. The fat phonies. Because <laughs> that would be amazing. That'd be, that would be w- genuinely just... amazing. Yeah, it would be amazing. And one should be a Foley artist because it works on oh. several levels like the Matrix Revolutions. Oh. <laughs> I was using a coconut for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Peter Berg, you remember him. Uh, yeah, he's he, like the Titanic. That's right. Yeah. He is developing another rundown. You might know the film starring The Rock as Welcome to the Jungle. And you might also know it because it saw Arnie kind of hand over the torch to The Rock in a very brief uh, and fun uh, cameo. Uh, so his rockness is um, not confirmed to be in this uh, in this uh, follow-up, but it is being planned. Apparently it's something Peter Berg is asked about a lot and he has finally let slip that, yes, there are there are more firm than you thought plans to make this happen and uh, that is in my world a good thing definitely i really like the first one i think this is one of those ones where again it's it's done well on dvd perhaps better than it Mm. did in the cinema and that's why it's suddenly being talked about again scary it was back in 2003 when it came out it's um kind of crazy 10 years and the rock is still um you know He's keeping on rocking in the free world. Is so he going to have an Explosions in the Sky soundtrack? I really hope so, uh, to tie in with a Peter Berg, uh, Friday Night Lights uh, type thing. Uh, we've also got a follow-up to our other story that Phil has regularly been bringing up for whatever reason, because we just love Queen. Uh, Freddie Mercury biopic. You may remember that Sasha Baron Cohen was earmarked to play the mustachioed uh, microphone rocker. Uh, but that fell apart when Queen uh, as a whole decided to not lend their songs to the uh, biopic which is pretty important when you're making a Freddie Mercury biopic this is because um, they uh, Sasha Baron Cohen wanted to make it a edgier no holds barred R rated for want of a better phrase 18 rated uh, you know delve into Freddie Mercury's ribald world I guess and I can imagine why you know his close friends didn't really want to do a warts and all thing uh, to mention warts for the second time in this podcast uh, directing this project will be Dexter Fletcher who previously Hooray. brought us the um, very rock and roll warts and all movie Sunshine on Leith <laughs> uh, which is possibly the most cheer you up chappy have another bag of uh, uh, sweeties lovely jolly film uh, so maybe this will be the same probably not starring as uh, Mr Mercury will be Q himself <gasps> Ben Whishaw mm. This is interesting I mean we don't I, I haven't heard him sing on film I'll be honest but I, I like him very much he's a terrific actor I mean if, if all you've seen him in is Q you've only seen a tiny tiny fraction of what he can do his Hamlet on the London stage was one of the great ones of this century and uh, and he's been absolutely brilliant in, in you know everything he's done basically when he so fell far. out of a window in uh, Nathan Barley as Pingo <laughs> uh, and had his you know his gonads electrocuted on a regular basis I mean that's what made me think Mercury yeah yeah that, he, he's had the, the you know the genital electrocution work done that's required to hit those notes that Freddie can get yeah so you know best of luck to him and hope it isn't too painful I wonder yeah. if he is going to do his own singing or maybe they'll just a, use that's yeah. a voice that is I a heck thought of a voice. it was Dominic Cooper as I probably you probably said on the podcast. Passing, mm. Yeah, mm. disappointing for me, really, that that didn't turn out to be true. But Ben Rochelle, I don't know, he's an interesting choice. He certainly is. Dexter Fletcher's probably a more interesting choice, really, because that sort of shows you the direction that they want to be taking this. Poppy, peppy, poppy, peppy, funny. We will rock you, kind of, yeah, kind of thing. Just the songs, and live aid. Stuff. Yeah, I think I think it's good that Dexter Fletcher's also kind of getting, you know stepping up and getting considered for for bigger jobs like this. I think fair yeah. play to him. Anything like, that gets him back in this pod booth. Absolutely. It's fine by us, because the man is an absolute blast. More sort of sequel franchise news in the shape of Indiana Jones 5, or the Indiana Jones property, uh, which has been Paramount and Disney have shaken hands. 
um, on if they can shake hands as studios on a deal to which basically relinquishes control, if not all of the financial uh, ramifications of another Indiana Jones film to Disney, which puts Frank Marshall and um, all of the Indiana Jones world onto the into the Disney huge Disney beast. Soon Disney will own all of us and this pod booth. Um, if they want us, they can. Yes, please. <laughs> come and come and get us. Yeah. This is what they call a come and get us plea. Our, our, our starting price is four billion, but we're prepared to come down. We'll come down a little bit. Yeah, we'll come down a little bit. About four billion, I think. Yeah. Give what have we got that billion. they might want? We've got a balloon. We've, we've got. We've got our ready wit and opinions. our keen minds. We've got opinions. Well, we've got a balloon. We've, yeah, we have a balloon. That's pretty much all we have. <laughs> so this, I think, means that there will be another Indiana Jones film. It's been bubbling away. Can I get a high five and a yay? No. No, I didn't think Not so. yet, because we're doing news. But later, oh, maybe. Uh, maybe a hug? Yeah, okay, on then. A lovely hug. Oh, but there'll be another film, but they're going to have to hurry up, because Harrison Ford, and it's not getting any younger, obviously. Is dead! <laughs> oh, my God, is that the revelation? Is that what you're going to say? Oh, my God. Oh, no, no, no. no, no sorry. No, no, no. Sorry, you I'm, misread I'm, that. You I'm, misread I'm, that. Your page was upside down. I mean, sorry. Said, seriously, <laughs> talk about burying really... the lead. <laughs> yeah, sorry guys <laughs> really loud I've worked on two levels man that was good um, I love it when people do that that's like when Nick in the office goes oh, oh might tweet that later <laughs> screw you Nick <laughs> stop working on multiple levels people it's okay. too much for me okay. my brain let's get back to Indiana Jones so Harrison what does Ford. this mean what does this mean a remake maybe a reboot what if it's a new Indiana Jones anything could happen anything could happen on this On this at this point it, they've been talking about it and they've got Jurassic Park happening and there's Star Wars it's all happening out there at the moment at Disney so who knows? But certainly, if they don't make it soon, whatever adventures that are out there for uh, uh, Indiana Jones are going to have to come to Indiana Jones because he's going to be limited in mobility. I um, think uh, well, they're clearly working on it right now. Did you see the tweet from Frank Marshall the other day? He, Frank Marshall is saying, I'm, I'm back in the Indiana Jones offices. Being in the Indiana Jones offices on the Disney lot is a, is a weird feeling. But that means that there are Indiana, Indiana Jones offices on Disney right now, which means something is happening on Indy Do you think so? right now. Just because yeah. they've got an office. I think so. Doesn't mean, who knows? I think so. But that man, is he's working on Bourne, he's working on, or not Bourne, whatever it's going to be called. <laughs> he's sh- working on all should, sorts of things. They should adapt the point-and-click adventure involving Atlantis, uh, which is a cracking story. If you've not played it before, it's actually really good fun. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's that, is great, of, that is a great That is a good game. Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Such a good, with the U-boat and stuff. Oh, yeah. I love that. I I have mixed feelings about this one. So I, do I. I. I think I think the three existing Indiana Jones movies are so perfect. Mm. I think to make a fourth would be a big mistake. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's just stick with those Personally. three. Uh, also, a reboot of Indiana Jones, I just don't know. I don't know. It has to be Harrison Ford for me. I don't know, maybe involving something about... If you ever heard about this, about these Crystal Skulls, really interesting legend, and I think maybe he could go after Crystal those. Skulls, tell us more. Well, I have news. Uh, Juan Antonio Bayona has been set as the director for a World War Z slash Z sequel. This is good news. It is good news. Uh, Bayona has a pretty much flawless track record. Some Stuff like, uh, obviously, The Impossible last year, but The Orphanage before that. So we know he can handle big scale, you know, disaster work. We also know that he can handle scary stuff um, and, and and sort of individual drama as well. Um, so I think he's a really good shot. The the big question will be, where do they go from where we left the last film? Yes. Which I'm not going to say too much about if you haven't, you know, seen it yet. Um, you probably should. It's a good film. It has nothing to do with the book. Um, and will this one take anything from the book? I mean, really, it's all there for grabs. All of it. Every single story beat is sitting there waiting for you to adapt <laughs> it. So why not have a go? Just Hollywood? start again, you think? <laughs> 
Um, I don't know. I just it's it's a little bit difficult because I'm not sure how you do much. I mean, the book's best set pieces, you know, are kind of tied into the way that the zombies in the book work, which is slow. Yeah, and a lot of them wouldn't work with. Agreed. Fast zombies, like the, course, the, the existence of the Lobo, the mm. tactics that they use against the zombies, the Battle of Yonkers, all of this stuff. But there's got to be something you can take and do. Yes, yeah. maybe the zombies default to become slow-moving zombies. And there, of course, there were, you know, yeah. Jerry Lane didn't exist in the in the book. There True. were all sorts of different characters. Uh, you know, the Japanese um, uh, section of the book I absolutely loved. Oh, I'd gosh, love to see yeah. that character whose name escapes me. I apologise to that fictional character. Um, and uh, but Bayona um, is a horror director, and this is interesting. Uh, he has a horror background. He loves horror. He's and he's very very good at generating scares. It's impossible, even though it was a, ultimately a heart wrenching and emotional drama, mm. is also terrifying. Yeah. And I think um, he can really make this work on uh, a zombie movie on a big big scale. I really really liked World War Z. It came very very close to being my top ten of the year, uh, which surprised me wow. because I'm, it, I'm a yeah. I'm a zombie purist. It, it won um, me over. I, I was yeah. I was kind of expecting the worst uh, going in because I'm a big fan of the book and it clearly isn't the book. But leaving that aside, it is a very good adventure film. But I think it would be right. I mean, talking earlier about changing genres, this would be one where you could change the genre and make this one more of a musical. horror movie and horror a, movie. A, a musical horror movie, and it would be interesting. I'm excited about this too. I think I like I like the first one, and I think uh, there's plenty of places they can go. Mm. Paris, hopefully, the catacomb stuff is pretty amazing. He'd be great for that. All of the underground where the zombies are living, and they have to go down and clear them out. Kind of Second World War. Um, hand-to-hand combat style. The problem is for the horrors that this is very much established as a PG-13 type uh, treatment, isn't it? So you can't mm. really throw a lot of like Lobo hacking, hack and slash yeah, stuff you, into you, it. You can do the gore, but I think there's there is room to make stuff very very scary without gore. So I don't know. I'm I'm certainly intrigued, and we'll have to see where it goes from here. Honestly, Peter Capaldi in action. <laughs> it's intriguing. It's intriguing because um, we're about to discuss the Hobbit: The Desolation of Smag, and um, that has an awful lot of violence in it, and a lot of mm. heads being lopped off, and people being stabbed with arrows and whatnot. And that's a PG thirteen, so you can be intense. And there was actually a, a story this week where some some academics actually looked at uh, R rated movies compared to PG thirteen movies in the states, and find basically no difference between them in terms of levels of sex and violence. Um, it, it's more the kind of window dressing around it. It's not so much levels of violence as levels of blood that makes the difference between the ratings. So anyway, you can do a lot, is what we're saying. Absolutely. Um, just one final story to finish off on, and that is the news that Terminator Genesis, as the fifth instalment of the franchise is now called, um, may have a leading John Connor. And that John Connor is Jason Clark, probably at this point best known for his role in Zero Dark Thirty, where he tortured people to get information. Um but he will now be the great white hope for mankind in the future ruled by the machines. Good actor. Very good actor. And I kind of buy him as a leader of men, I've got to say. I think he's uh, he's a very kind of big, you know, manly presence. This will be, what, the fifth John Connor? I believe so, at least the fifth, I think. Yeah, there's two in Terminator 2. Nick Stahl, obviously, in T3. Uh, uh, Christian Bale yep. in... Uh, Terminator Salvation, name I almost forgot there. That shows how much an impact that movie made on me. And uh, and Jason Clarke is the fifth yeah. one. Yeah. Okay. It's a, it's an interesting one. They also, I mean, there there have been rumours about um, uh, Sarah Connor being Amelia Clark or Brie Larson. Now, obviously, they're a lot younger than someone who would play Jason Clarke's mother in the yeah. same timeline. So we must be talking. Obviously, we're talking about split timelines. 
you know, present and future, if you will. Maybe, um, or maybe John Connor goes back in time or to maybe John team Connor, up with his mum and become I'm, his own dad. Oh, yuck. Just throwing it out there. Please don't. Never throw that. What I'm saying is, though, it looks like it might be a little bit more of an equal split between sort of present-ish and future-ish. Okay. Intriguing. I uh, just want to mention very, very quickly, the uh, news of Simon Pegg has joined absolutely anything, the Terry Jones movie that reunites most of the Pythons, not all of them, but uh, one's dead and <laughs> Eric Idle hasn't uh, committed to it. But um, uh, this is uh, an intriguing storyline that will mark Terry Jones's first movie for a long, long time. Uh, it's about a an ordinary guy who uh, is given powers by aliens. It means that anything he says and, uh, and wishes comes true. Robin Williams plays a dog, a talking dog. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Done. So, Sold. That, that starts a- filming uh, next year. Time now for another interview. We've got two more interviews to go. Here's the first one. With the desolation of Smaug hitting cinemas today, we decided to sit down with two stars of the new Hobbit movie. First up is Luke Evans. He's had a heck of a year. He was a bad guy in Fast and Furious 6. He made our 666 greatest horror movie characters list with his uh, role as driver in No One Lives. He was cast as Draclier and The Crow, and now he's about to hit the big screen as Bard the Bowman in Peter Jackson's sequel. He was speaking to... Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to Phil. Nick. And Nick. Well, there you go. Enjoy. We are very happy to be here with Luke Evans, a.k.a. Bard the Bowman, the first human character to be seen in the Hobbit trilogy and the first Welsh one. That's right. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm very good. Very good indeed. Yeah, so the accent, was that your decision? No, it was... um it was uh, Peter, Fran, and Philippa's idea. They'd I, th- I went I went on tape for Bard about eighteen months before I actually had a recall um, for uh, for the character. And the, when I had the recall, they said that we they'd heard my accent on interviews I'd done online on TV or whatever on YouTube or whatever. And they thought that they they thought my accent might work well with Bard. So they asked me if I would uh, do the screen test with my own accent and that's basically how it began and the rest is history what did you have to do in your screen test i had to do the scene in where was it it was in in my house which is which is your big moment kind of the big moment sort of changed now it was uh, the scene was rewritten quite substantially so it's a different scene now to the one it was and we don't uh, get to see you doing any archery yet in, in Not this really. film. Not really. Uh, just at the beginning, when you first meet me, you see me with a bow and arrow, but then you don't see me after that. Because, you know, Bard's life when you meet him isn't really about being a bowman anymore, even though he has this amazing skill. He doesn't need it, really. He doesn't. His life is all about just making a bit of money, looking after his kids and, uh, you know, living day by day, hand to mouth. Transporting fish around. Lots of fish. That only once does he do that. He does that only to smuggle the dwarves in. Usually those barrels are empty. Those barrels are usually full of wine, you see. So you wouldn't want wine out of those fishy barrels, would you, after that? (laughs) Are they real fish or not? We were were talking about this before. Yeah, they were real fish. Wow. Yeah, yeah. about, it was about, God, about half a ton of fish, I think. Wow. So the dwarf actors must have had a few showers after. They hated it. They absolutely hated it. Yeah, they stank for days. Yeah, it's not very nice. And that that Lake Town set is absolutely amazing. I mean, that must have been fun to walk around. It was. It was lovely to walk around a set that, you know, you just keep walking, turning corners, going over bridges and still not actually getting to the edge of the the set. It was (laughs) amazing. It really was that big. It was an insanely beautiful set when it was lit properly. And they used to have these these little... um, 
water pipes that would spray out very fine mist over and it would the mist would just float on the top of the surface of the lake so it looked like the lake was you know in the mornings when the water is warmer than the actual air and you get that steed that mist they could recreate that um with um these special misters that were just under the edge of the gangplanks it was very very clever stuff and all that ice was all obviously fake but there were pieces of ice everywhere and all all the guys did all day long was just move them around <laughs> to make them uh, be in the right places at the right time is it kind of tr- i mean there's quite a lot of uh, bard gallivanting around late town of pace was there any uh, mishaps on your own? Well, amazingly, I spent almost like a year and a half in it doing, running around, literally running over the rooftops, around the around the streets, over bridges, um, and I didn't fall in once. And then went back for the pickup, 10-week pickup session uh, earlier on this year, and the first take, the first shot of me running around a corner, and I just missed it, and I went straight in. <laughs> it was unbelievable. They they shot it as well. It's on the bloopers, probably. Yeah, but that was the first time I couldn't believe it. It was unbelievable. I was like all that time I did it every almost every day I was on that set and then I didn't and then I come back. See, I was out. I was out. Yeah, out of practice. Out of practice. Yeah, not match fit. And is it a, is it a forgiving crew in terms of laughing at your mishap? Oh no, God! They all laughed. They all laughed. They laughed incessantly for about ten minutes, um, and they filmed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, no, but they're they're a lovely bunch. It's a it's a very nice atmosphere on set. They're really really nice people. Now you tweeted this morning a photo of the Hobbit Monopoly yeah. set, which has your photo on the front. I know, mad, right? Oh, you're gonna get that for everyone for Christmas. Yeah, I'm getting it tonight. <laughs> yeah, I've already ordered it. Yeah, it's what, awesome. What's your Monopoly strategy? Um, I looked at the I looked at the board, right, and I I I went I looked around and I realised that I am the third most expensive place on the board behind Gandalf and then Bilbo so not doing too badly because he's a pauper of a lakeman lake Talman, <laughs> you know wait so you're at an actual property or an actual well, um, I think that instead of there being streets in on the Monopoly board it's actually um, people oh. just all the different characters but weirdly the, the houses you can buy are lake town houses <laughs> which is really cool that is amazing yeah we were uh, pondering whether instead of a dog you can play as a wag or something. Have you, uh, you know, uh, do you know what the little pieces are that you can play? Mm, yeah, there was like, um, there was a sword. I think it must be maybe Sting, maybe. Mm-hmm. Then there is, um, there's a little miniature stone dwarf. And there was, I've forgotten the others. But, yeah. but that's crazy, having your own board Isn't game. it mad? I mean, yeah. that, oh, the bow and arrow. Yeah, bow and arrow. Uh, uh, the, the, what do you call the thing, the bow quiver? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, That's cool. there's something where you don't, you don't think about it at the time do you, when you do a movie like this, but, um, you, these things are made, you know, you, you're part of not just uh, the film, but the whole thing that goes with the film. It's, um, it's incredible. It really is special. This is the first Christmas when you can go, okay guys, who fans is a board game? Oh, here's one. I'm in it. <laughs> if you land can on you me, ma- I yeah. can shoot you with a bow and arrow. Yeah, exactly. Legally. Yeah. Yeah. You automatically win if, you're, <laughs> if, you're, if your face is on the uh, yeah, front Yeah, exactly, cover. yeah. I own everything, yeah. Unless you change your name to Kamchatka and play Risk instead. Mm, I don't know. Do that. And you've got Lego as well. So I have Lego as well, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, um, and uh, yeah, there was a little, there's a restaurant chain in America. I won't mention it, but they have like Bard, a Bowman pumpkin pie and uh, Bowman's brew, which is this 
chocolate pumpkin chocolate drink and it was lake town lake town tart and whatever there was a fillet of fish <laughs> no there was no fish on the menu thank god yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's cool it's very cool but you've come a long way because only three years ago in Robin Hood your character was Sheriff's Fug yeah <laughs> six second debut so what, what happened in that six seconds that so after that I then went on and did Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll with Andy Circus, which is when I first met him played a very small role then I went and did Blitz and Tamara Drew I did a an indie called Flutter which was never released so no one's ever seen that and then yeah it's just it just come one they built they they got bigger and bigger every role sort of was a little bit larger and um and some did really well and some didn't do so well and you know it's the way the world of an actor and films and stuff and and sure enough this year has been the biggest year of my career so far with um Fast 6 coming out doing really great business and you know people really liked the role and and then, you know, The Hobbit finally coming out, it's a really big deal. And obviously I've just wrapped Dracula, which is my first title role for a studio film. And um, and I'm off to do The Crow next. So, And I fitted in a little TV job there as well for the BBC, for the Great Train Robbery. So uh, it's been a, a busy, the busiest year so far, and they've been busy. So um, for me to say that, that's <laughs> saying something. <laughs> We, not to say that we just researched by looking at your Twitter feed, because we went far beyond that, but we did spot a cover of the Men's Health magazine. Uh-oh. Uh, sorry. Where, um, where, where the headline was, <clears throat> Luke Evans's three power moves for career success. And I just wondered, what are they like, physical moves, or is it more just sort of tactical? I don't know. I, I really probably need to read the article <laughs> to see what they've pulled out of my interview that has found them three power moves I, d- <laughs> I don't know what they could be to rescue something sensible from a ridiculous question um, what advice would you would you have for A a younger you from three or four years ago and mm. B for someone that wanted to break into acting and wanted to make a career out of it well if we said a younger me let's say, say like five or six years ago then that would have been just before all this crazy film stuff started and um, I would have just said it was absolute nonsense that I was going to be doing what I was doing and so Maybe a younger me, I would have just said, you know, keep at it, which I already had been keeping at it for a good 10 years. Um, and it wasn't always plain sailing, you know. Um, and it sometimes it's dismaying as an actor because you don't work or you don't get the job you want. But I, who, was, who was to know that this was going to happen? So I probably would have just said, stick at it, kid. You know, mm-hmm. it might, it's going to work out. And for anybody who's thinking of becoming an actor, I would probably... I'd probably warn them that it's not easy. It's not an easy business. And there's a lot of setbacks, especially early on in your career. And I think those setbacks early on in your career that either make you or break you. And um, you either become stronger from not getting the job or you can't deal with the pressure and you leave the business. So if you're ready for it, if you're prepared for setbacks, then you'll do much better than people who are not, who think it's all going to be delivered to them on a silver plate, because it's not. It rarely happens like that. Most actors you see work very hard and have downtime when they don't, they have to take other jobs, which I've done, and um, and it's not it's not plain sailing. Just People just see you successful, and they assume you've been always been successful, but that's not the case. And so um, if you choose to do it, it's a lifestyle, it's a whole change of life really and it's um it's very precarious and unpredictable but you have to embrace that part of being an actor that's part of the reasons why I do what I do because I I don't know what I'm going to be doing after the crow I have no idea um that's the exciting bit you know 
who knows? It's exciting. Hopefully there'll be something, or maybe there isn't. Maybe this is it. What can you tell us about the crow and Dracula? Because they're both properties that we've seen before, but mm. it's interesting that they're both coming back. Yeah, well, coming back, the, I wouldn't say the Dracula that you're going to see, the story that we're telling is really coming back, because it's the untold story of the origins of Dracula. So we're not just focusing on the vampire, we're focusing on the man behind the vampire. So we're actually basing the, the beginning of the film in the real world, in the world of Transylvania in, 14, in the 1400s. 1480s, um, where we meet Vlad Tepes, who was a man that, you know, was a king of, of his country. He was uh, a ruler. Um, he could be a very just ruler, but he could also be a very harsh uh, ruler and uh, quite a vicious disciplinarian. Um, but you meet this man and you, you discover his life and his the reasons why he makes decisions in his life and the sacrifices he makes that make him into well, turn him into this creature that we know all so well as Dracula, which is the sort of the, the, the daddy of all vampires. But it's about his journey and it's about what happens in his life and um, that that uh, that we focus on solely, um, you know, because it's the, it's the untold story. We're starting at the beginning. You know, there's a long way to go with Dracula. He's lived for a very long time, so we're better to start than the beginning. Do you get to wear anything as insane as Gary Oldman's battle armor? From the oh, I can't. I can't say. I would be giving it away, but you know, it's a very famous armor that. So um, it's very much part of the legacy of of Dracula. So um, who knows? And then um, playing the crow. Obviously, that's an incredibly exciting responsibility. Um, knowing the amount of of attention the original film got and the huge fan base that it still has and people hold it very dearly to their hearts because of the sadness behind the story of, of the creating of the crow because of poor brandon lee died making it um so there's a i feel a huge sense of responsibility and um i'm surrounded by a very very loyal team of people that care very much about telling the story and adding parts to the story that were never told the first time round. We're, we're going back to the basically back to the comic source material we're not turning this into a hollywood movie we're keeping it solely based on what we what you read in the book and um, that was never done the first time around there's, there's a lot that was missing and so we're putting all that back in um which is very exciting which it means it isn't we're not just redoing the story that's been told we're telling a story and adding the stuff that was never in it the first time interesting we've just done a list of the 20 greatest set pieces of the year and Fast Six is included in there with oh, that, that's awesome. the nuts runway chase. Oh my god! Yeah, I wanted to, to I wanted to ask what it was like making that. I mean, the the, the airplane that we worked on, they built a life size interior of an Antonov Russian cargo plane, and um, it, it was on a it was on a, in a, a metal structure that uh, and that was on then on um, suspension uh, air, air, air pocket suspension cushions, so that they could shake it. And so that we would work on it was like the plane was taking off down a runway, you know, and um, it was an extraordinary set piece, actually. And um, who was to know that there was a runway that long? In the <laughs> we, we actually calculated uh, how long it 38 is. 38 miles, isn't it? No, I think it was about 14, oh, 14, 14 miles. miles, I think oh, 14 it was. Oh, 14 miles. So about from here to Heathrow. 
Hmm. Maybe in the next one. It's a big plane, though, guys. Big plane. There's a lot of heavyweights on that plane. Could have been, you know, you had Vin Diesel, you had The Rock, you had that giant man on my side. I mean, that's a lot of time to take off. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Um, We've got to go now. But last couple of very quick questions. I wondered, I wondered what your film of the year was, and also what you'd like for Christmas. Oh, do you know what? I, I hate questions like film of the year because then I feel like I'm upsetting everybody else. I'd tell you the film that really got me, I got me really wrapped up. There was two actually. And I, 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 I loved Prisoners. I thought it was a great movie. It really, I was, you know, I was totally in, in, immersed in it. And I thought Captain Phillips was, was really great. Um, really, really good performances all around. Not just Mr. Hanks, who obviously did a great job, but I felt that the Somali cast were... They were really, really good. Um, Christmas present. Um, I'm giving myself a Christmas present of a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going away for Christmas. I'm disappearing somewhere warm, and I'm going to sit on a beach and frazzle. Very nice. Well, I hope you have a wonderful time. Thanks, somewhere maybe. with no fish. No, I think there's plenty of fish. I hope so. I like fish. Merry Christmas. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks. All the best. Thanks. Lovely Luke Evans. Was he good, Phil? Nice guy? Lovely man. Lilting Welsh accent. Lovely Welsh accent. Lovely, lovely, lovely Luke Evans. Okay, time for the reviews. Uh, Let's be honest, really. Review, as very few films have been brave enough to stand up to the might of The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. So, that's where we'll start. Helen. Well, yes. Yeah, so we we rejoin our heroes. They've they're still in the wilds, just over the Misty Mountains, which is about as far as they got last time. Uh, they are trying to find a way through warg and goblin infested lands no. to get to the also scary Mirkwood, okay. and they have to cross that to get to the Lonely Mountain, which is where Smaug lives with all his treasure. Great. Yeah. Excellent. That's the setup. That's the setup. Yeah. Um, very very good. So uh, the first film last year. Um, Came out, did did very very well, had made yep. a billion. Um, but I sense it not. I really liked it, but the sense that not everyone was a, as in love with that movie as they were with Peter Jackson's original Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, does this movie put right any of the wrongs of that first film? Yeah, I think. I mean, the tone is a, is more kind of consistently ringsy, if you will, than that one was. I mean, I think last time. Uh, because The Hobbit is a different book, it's a much more childish book, it's a much simpler book, and it's a much funnier book, um, they, they brought some of that into the film, and you had stuff like the dishwashing song, and you had you know a lot of joking around and kind of pratfalling and that kind of thing. Um, this time, they've done away with a lot of that, and the focus is very much more on adventure, it's much more serious, and it is much more ringsy, and, and that is a sort of a, an impression that's bolstered by the presence of the Wood Elves. We get to, to go to basically Legolas's dad's kingdom, um, and see not only Leggy himself, but also Thranduil, mm. who's played by Lee Pierce, uh, Tariel Pace, Pace. Pace, sorry, uh, Thranduil, who's played by Lee Pace, uh, Tariel, who's played by uh, Evangeline Lilly, mm-hmm. and etc. And it just begins, it does begin to feel, feel a lot more ringsy, and that's even before you get to the Lonely Mountain, which you do in this film. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. You will get there, you will see a certain dragon. So it's got a bit more kind of epic scale, it's got a lot more kind of seriousness, and it's got a lot more kind of. I think action than the first one did. Yeah, hits the ground running. The first movie obviously took about an hour to leave Bilbo's kitchen. Uh, this movie really hits the ground running. There's a lovely scene at the very, very beginning. No spoilers, obviously. It's the very beginning of the movie between uh, Gandalf and uh, Thorne Oakenshield, played by Richard Armitage, who we'll be hearing very, very soon after this review. In fact, and that's really, really nice. It's a, it's a sort of a prologue, if you will, that, that, that takes place before the first movie that sets up Thorne's quest and his relationship with Gandalf. And then it really does hit the ground running with the 
with the hobbits, uh, sorry, the dwarves and uh, Bilbo and Gandalf being chased relentlessly by Azog the Defiler and his uh, never-ending supply of orcs. I mean, this guy seriously has an inexhaustible supply of henchmen. It's uh, it's it's quite it's quite cool. And we should mention as well that the necromancer comes into it. He was kind of hinted at last time we saw. Gandalf visiting the ruins of Dol Guldur, which are his stronghold. Uh, this time we see that there's really something quite sinister going on there and it kind of sets up what I think is going to be a very big confrontation in the third film and also ties this a little bit closely, more closely together with Lord of the Rings. I think this comes on leaps and bounds from the first film. I have lots of very encouraging and very exciting things to talk about. You want to leave the film and say, hey, this is great, but you've got to see it, there's this, and then that happens, and this is great, and oh, when he does that, it's fantastic, and Martin Freeman is brilliant yet again, he's fantastic. Yeah. I do feel the focus is lost on him slightly. Um, it it can, for, obviously comes back greatly towards the end, but there are sequences in this movie where he's just, he's off screen for a long, long time. Focus is a problem generally with this film. It is a, a kid's a kid's story and it is very much A to B to C to D to E to F to G to mountain to dragon to and so on. So there is a certain amount of, oh, we're now in this section, we're now in this section. It's very beat by beat by beat, but some of the beats are incredible. The I'm sure you've heard if you've spoken to anybody about this film he's already seen it uh, that the uh, washing up no, that the uh, barrel <laughs> sequence is outstanding in fact it has the moment this year where I've laughed the most continuously really? I, I laugh continuously for about 20 seconds the bit <laughs> with the spin- person spinning around that was fantastic. Oh, was, yeah, okay, yeah, that's quite funny. There, there is, there, are, it's, it's, it gets the comedy right again. It's uh, action and it's surprising, and there's a confidence and excitement. You can tell when Peter Jackson's going, "I love this, let's go for it." The spiders and Mirkwood is fantastic. Uh, Smaug, who's voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch, is chilling and looks outstanding. Like yeah. it's a glorious, great work. Yeah. Giant, like they have to create obviously this huge building to house him in the the you know the uh, under the mountain is just so well done. I love how they create this uh, dwarven horse. It's like uh, the Mines of Moria, but like more so. And the gold is stunning. And I honestly, if I could say one thing again about this film, I said about the first one, but Martin Freeman's fantastic when he's in, uh, you know, the the, the mountain. He is. He does mm. things. There are some little beats, little clever moments where you know it's it's from him. He's bringing it, and so he is just he's very good indeed. Mm. At the same time, there are lots of niggles I have, and a part of them I I would have to lay at Tolkien's door. It's not necessarily Jackson's fault. Uh, it's just that this book isn't necessarily that well suited to be made into a film because, like I say, there's so much going on. There's so much to to touch on to deal with, and certain decisions that Jackson's made to bring people in and tie plots together aren't necessarily to my taste. But for the most part, I really enjoy this film. It has its flaws. You will be talking about things that you didn't like as well as things that you did. But all in all, this is an absolute riot. And there are about four or five moments where you will, for my money, think, well, that's why I paid to go and see it in the cinema. If there are flaws, it would be that they should just be more ruthless in the editing room, I would say. But I just, I enjoyed it a lot more as well than the first one. I think there's an acceptance even from some of the people involved in the film that this is a real step up in quality and... Uh, drama from from um, an unexpected journey and it has um, stakes real sense of jeopardy which the first film didn't really have where it just felt like a bit of a if you compare the the um, Goblin King escape to the barrel sequence you felt that was fun and I laughed and it was you know it was brilliantly choreographed and props to Joe Letary and the um, and the Weta Digital effects work on that because it's just spectacular but you know the first film that Goblin Chase just felt like 
I just no, I just didn't really Mild make diversion. Just, yeah, it was boring, and you never felt like anyone was in any danger. Whereas with this one, I felt a little bit more exhilarated by it all. And when they came out the other side, you felt a sense of relief and all the things you should feel in a big adventure. Um, some of the late town stuff, I was a little disappointed with. I don't think that was necessarily. Peter Jackson, you know, people say he's not great at the love story stuff. You can see that in his filmography, pretty much, apart from maybe King Kong. Meet the a little different. Clearly. Meet the Feebles. But, um, and there is this little love story in there, which I quite enjoyed. I thought it had a nice chemistry. Uh, uh, quite chaste, obviously. But the Lake Town <laughs> stuff is, I thought, a little. Mm, I could have. They could have done more with it. They could have. There's this idea of this, this human community, which makes you think for the first time in Middle Earth, you see what how humans deal with all this craziness around them. Um, and yet you had slightly two-dimensional characters like like the master. Stephen played, Fry. Played brilliantly by Stephen Fry and flamboyantly so and great to watch, but at the same time as a character is not that interesting. I, I actually loved Lake Town. I, I just, yeah, I think I wanted more of it, maybe. But I think it, it, that, that felt like something we're going to see more of when there's an extended edition of this. And or next time, I think we're going to be going back to Lake Town uh, at the beginning of the next film, I suspect. To look at, production design-wise, oh, fantastic. Incredible. yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And the detailing is remarkable. Um, and we were on set, and it's something that they wrote about in the magazine. And, and, and every, to the nth degree, all of the, you know, and that comes across in the whole. But I just thought that the politicking and the and the the, the fact that they're torn between the, the gold and the avarice and knowing that they've got this, this beast can come out and destroy them... Um, it could have been more sophisticatedly handled. There's one particular scene which I had a bit of a problem with. Uh, there's interesting depth and shape being introduced into the franchise at this point. Thorne Oakenshield uh, is becoming a much more complicated character than perhaps he was first time around. Although I liked him first time around, he's got a, a lot of depth to him. He's not the necessarily straight up heroic dwarf that you would think he might be uh, on first viewing. And I like that. I think Martin Freeman is very, very nicely sketching out Bilbo's uh, corruption at the hands of the ring. Uh, as well, his uh, confrontation with Smaug at the end is is fantastic. Uh, there's a lot to there's a lot to really really like about this movie, and I think Lord of the Rings fans will be uh, will will feel comfortable with yeah. this film. And there I are think. some lovely throwbacks in this. I mean, the the very opening scene, which is an addition from the book, um, but one that I think works really well, has Gandalf meeting Thorin in Bree before the start of the last film. Before you know, it's the the two of them getting together. And it, you go back to the Prancing That's Pony, right. and the, the set is just as it was. And the first and person we see in this movie is, well, I won't say. Yes, it's a, it's a nice little. It's a lovely little touch. And uh, yeah, and it's just it's, it was actually really really pleasant to be back on that set. But it w- it wasn't just a scene that was there for nostalgia value. It was a scene that really actually kind of moved the plot forward and explained something about Thorin in a slightly different light than we see in the book that actually I think works very well for this version of the character so uh, you'll see exactly what I mean when you see it but I don't want to spoil everything because it's a really lovely little beat Yes uh, and it is uh, virtually non-stop action um, as well as you mentioned the, the Spiders of Mirkwood sequence is fantastic there's the barrel sequence which is great the the whole Smaug sequence uh, is is a wonderful set piece so there's a, there's a really really lot to love about this I do feel it suffers slightly from middle film syndrome uh, and it is very, very much a setup for the next movie, but uh, but hey ho, it is fantastic. We gave it five stars. It's a wonderful spectacle. Do check it out on the biggest screen you can possibly find, uh, not your iPhone, if you can. That'd be great. And if you want to hear us dig further into the Hobbit: The Desolation of Smaug, because we've been tiptoeing around spoilers like crazy here, um, our spoiler special podcast will be up all being well on. And I'm looking at Ali here, Monday. I'd say late Monday. Late Monday, maybe Tuesday at, at a at a if everything goes horribly wrong. Okay, but we're recording it uh, tomorrow. Uh, It won't just have us banging on about it, though you'll be pleased to hear. We'll have spoiler-filled interviews 
with James Nesbitt. James Nesbitt. James, James, Jimmy Nesbitt. Jimmy, hello. Stop um, doing your impression. Hello, Jimmy Nesbitt. And uh, Bilbo himself, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. Martin, Martin. No, okay. Uh, so that's definitely one to look out for. Uh, and uh, there are some other films out this week. There's The Christmas Candle, which marks a big screen debut. TV. TV. Hello, I'm Susan Boyle. Susan Boyle. Subo. Sue's album party. Yes. Uh, please stop there. It's no, that's the, 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 <laughs> I know, the hashtag. I know Susan hashtag. album party. Yes. Uh, it's uh, it's actually pretty, not brilliant. We've called it indigestible Christmas stodge in our reviews, so be warned. Uh, which is a shame because it has Leslie Manville, Sylvester McCoy and Samantha yeah. Barks in. What? All people we wish well of. Please don't bark, what? Chris. Sorry, um, that's a terrible bark as But well. it basically involves a vicar rediscovering his faith in miracles and magical candles bestowed by angels, which is all a bit odd. So, um, yeah, it might have worked sort of 70 years ago, but not so much nowadays. Mind you, we have been just talking about a film in which a bunch of dwarfs are chasing a dragon for money. Yeah, but dragons make sense. Come on. You and Vickers are dragons. just mythical. If you love dragons so much, why don't you just go and live with one in a big castle under the ground filled with money? Sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if anyone can arrange this, do write into Helen. Uh, so that's Christmas Candle. And then this week uh, marks the re-release of the wonderful Cinema Paradiso. Still brilliant, I'm guessing. Yes. Yes, well Definitely done. go see it, if only for the kiss montage. It yes. Is, it is one of the greats. And that is also a five-star film. Five stars. Is that it this week? Anything else? Pretty much. That's pretty much it. Yeah, mm. there you go. So five stars for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug. Five stars for Cinema Paradiso, the re-release. And five stars for Christmas Candle. Two stars for the Christmas Candle. And now it is time for our last interview with Hobbit stalwart Richard Armitage, a.k.a. the would-be under the... Uh, the would-be under the king? A.k.a. the would-be king under the mountain himself. He is, of course, Thorne Oakenshield, and he was speaking to... Who was he speaking to? He was speaking to Helen and Phil. Lovely. Enjoy this. Funny. What's wrong? What's wrong? You're just saying enjoy this. Enjoy this. <laughs> enjoy, enjoy. It's like a threat with a gun. Enjoy this. Enjoy it. Please enjoy it. Please enjoy this. Please enjoy it. Here in the Prancing Pony, having been a sort of Lord of the Rings obsessive, um, and they built the entire set. You know, the whole walk down and the pub. It, it, it's one of those, one of those locations that should be a permanent building somewhere on the planet that you can go and have a pint in the Prancing Pony. Definitely. It was it was really nice to be back there. I was actually kind of surprised when, when as soon as the camera went through the door, I was like, oh, it's this place again. Great. Yeah. Ian and I, Ian and I spent two days in that scene. It took two days to shoot um, and I could have stayed there for a week. It was great. It was a really nice place. Wow. And that, that scene is important because, you know, this isn't, I don't think, too much of a spoiler because it is the very opening of the film. So that sets up exactly why the Arkenstone matters so much to Thorin because in the book it just does. There's no real explanation given. But here, it, it, he's given a little more, more context. It's not just, oh, it's a big shiny jewel. Yeah, and I think they really wanted to differentiate between the, the sort of obsessive power of the ring and the Arkenstone. The Arkenstone is more of a talisman. It's more of a, with if you hold the Arkenstone, you have the right to rule and you can also call on other dwarf armies to rally to the cause, which is going to happen in movie three. He's going to have to call on some other dwarves to come help him fight. But also I think in that scene, you're setting up um, a sense that Gandalf is working on a greater political agenda. And you see that when he goes to Dol Guldur. And again, he's you know, um, critics or purists would po possibly look at that and think, why are we looking at Dol Guldur and why are we seeing this orc army gathering? And again, it slingshots into movie three when at the Battle of the Five Armies, it's not just random armies that turn up. They've all got an agenda. So yeah. really enjoyable scene to shoot. 
Yeah, definitely. And and it gives it a, a bit of more of a connection to the tissue of the of the other three films as well. It, yeah, you know, absolutely. It ties everything a bit more together. Yeah. Thorin feels like to me like he was kind of coming out of himself a little bit at the end of at the end of uh, an unexpected journey, and, and he, he feels like he's got a bit more of that. He's disappeared into himself a little bit more again, perhaps in this film, as, as the quest weighs him down. Is that fair? Um, that might be something to do with a kind of inconsistency in shooting because the new ending to movie one was a construction. It was a much later opening. It was a much later um, softening, should I say. But it's something that I actually really like. I um, Normally in movies, you, you sort of iron out all the inconsistencies and, and make things rational. And I like the fact that Thorin is a little bit unpredictable. He is changing. He is sort of questioning himself more when the quest becomes his and Gandalf leaves and he has to take control and, and things really start to go wrong. Um, I think I've, I think it's quite humiliating for him. Um, he, the Hobbit is proving to be his greatest asset because he's getting them out of so many sticky situations. And so by, by the time they reach the secret door, um, Thorin's view of Bilbo has really changed from Bag End. And I think, again, as we go into the next film where that relationship becomes really intense, they do sort of get to a good place. When we spoke to you on the podcast this time last year for the first film, you came up with this brilliant phrase. Was it about being a dwarf? Yeah, dwarf manatee. Dwarf manatee, as in humanity. When we spoke to you this time last year for the first film, you came up with this brilliant phrase, dwarf manatee, as in like the dwarf equivalent of, of humanity of these characters. But in this case, you think he's been sort of emasculated, whatever the equivalent of that would be, a little bit. Yeah, he's finding his hobbit manatee. <laughs> yeah. I think, no, he, it's sort of, yeah, his prejudices, are, I guess, are falling, are falling away. But, it, you know, by the end of the film, of this second film, he's entered the mountain. So the effect you see there's a very sort of curtailed moment where Thorin sees the gold for the first time and it starts to course through him and there's an irrational beginning when he says to Bilbo did you find the Arkenstone and you can see confusion in Thorin as to how he's behaving so yeah I I think I think he's changed in his views but um, it's going to get a lot more confusing for him and me right (laughs) What is that, depending on what scenes they add to number three as well? Yeah, we may, we may go back next year and shoot some more, but, you know, I would willingly get on a plane and go to New Zealand anytime. yeah. I mean, it was interesting as well to me, and again, in that opening scene, we, we get a little bit more of a hint of his background. You see that he's been hunted, and, you know, he, he, there's a price on his head. He's literally, you know, a wanted man. And also that he's he's looking for his father. You get a little bit more of that as well, that this, you know, this damaged man is wandering the wilderness somewhere, and that's kind of eating away at Thorin a little bit as well. You really paid attention, didn't I you? I did. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, very, very... Um, very interesting that yeah we are reminded that he's being pursued and i think that was something again which was added by the by the filmmaker um just because i I think it ramps up the tension you know they can't rest anywhere for too long um and there i think there will be an extended edition because we shot a flashback in that first sequence um where you see thorin losing his father on the battlefield and uh Again, I think there's. I think the scene has been cut from movie two, where Gandalf finds Thrain in Dol Guldur. Um, whether that's going to turn up in movie three, I don't know. But it's it's a difficult thread to follow because it would have been a flashback in a flashback, and that's a, a kind of weird way to start the film. But 
um, it, it was interesting for me to know that that was what was in Thorin's mind, this sort of obsession of his father that's di- that has disappeared a hundred years to the day before they set out on the quest. And he never finds out what happened to him. And, and you know, it galvanizes the fact that, that Thorin is the last of the line of Durin. And if, and if he fails to retake the mountain, then, then it's, you know, the line of Durin dies. Mm. It's a, a big obligation, moving. yeah. It's quite sweary in this film, isn't he? Can you teach us some sweary? He is very dwarf. sweary. Can you teach us the dwarf swear word? Oh, there's two, there's two great um, little phrases which they didn't subtitle. Um, the one, what he says to, it's actually both in relation to Thranduil because I think, he, I think Thranduil really gets Thorin's goat <laughs> for, for obvious reasons. Um, he says to Thranduil, Imridamradursul. The literal translation is dire death of flames. So it means burn in hell. And then the other one is Ishkakvi ein Gurgnul, which a rough translation of that is I pour excrement on the beard of your, or on the heads of your ancestors or your kin. So I shit wow. in your face, basically. <laughs> yeah. Have you used it in conversation since the film? I occasionally drop it in sometimes if someone's annoying me. (laughs) (laughs) And they look slightly... It's a bit rude. Slightly Dwarves are terribly rude, though. They are, aren't they? They're they're not the most refined uh, species of Middle-earth, I think it's fair to say. You had had some unusual experience in the Tokyo premiere of the first film where you were given microphones and there there was talk of perhaps doing some ad-lib, uh, sort of improvised singing. Japanese ad-libbing. Yeah. Oh, improvised singing. Did, we didn't do that. Did you did, I don't think you did it, but it was, you know, it was on the cards at one point. Have you, had any, have you had any strange experiences in the eye of the Hobbit promotional storm since then? Not with singing this year, no. Um, What's the theme this year? I'm just trying to think of a theme that's come <laughs> through this year. Oh, yeah, most people kind of come in and say, wow, you're really tall when I'm sitting in a chair. And I'm <laughs> like, how can you tell I'm sitting down? I think it's... I think it's uh, confusing people. Um, yeah, I think it, it's mainly that recognition thing. Most people don't assimilate that character in me, which is brilliant. It's everything I could possibly want from a role is to transform into what that character looks like away from myself. Yeah, a bit handy for walking around the street as well. I yeah, guess, if people I think aren't. we leave the singing this year to Ed Sheeran. Have you heard that song? I have. It's Isn't really it amazing? Nice. Yeah, really good. So first film was Neil Thin. This one was Ed Sheeran. What would be your dream artist for the third film? Kylie Minogue. No, I'm kidding. I think she's great, but not for this movie. I don't know. It's. Uh, it, I think it. they've gone along a folk theme. They really have. So I don't know. Maybe somebody like Laura Marling, I think, would be kind of interesting. But but if you notice, each song seems to be wrapped around a character. So I've got a, I've got a feeling that with the third film, the song is going to be something to do with going home um and it will be probably from bilbo's point of view so i don't know i suspect a male voice probably but who can tell at this point maybe you should run a competition that would be fun we should do that (laughs) when we we already get people to design posters on the website there's no reason we shouldn't get them writing songs as well you know let's just get them to do the work for us i wanted to ask about the barrel ride though because um it was it was brilliantly fun to watch but it looks like it was kind of horrific to shoot. I mean, has it put you off log flumes for life? I have to say, there were many horrors of of this film, but the barrel sequence was not one of them. On one of those rare occasions where the dwarves weren't whinging, because the stuff in the river, the Polaris River, was just glorious. We were cool for the first time in in, in forever because we were in these unsinkable barrels which were filled with water, um, so they were kind of riding low in the water, so you were in water in a barrel, if you see what I mean. Um, And the day was great and we were flowing. I mean, 
it wasn't a particularly fast flowing river, but we were certainly moving and catching the current. So we were having little races to see who could get to the end first. Amazing. I mean, th- the, one of the few times that Thorin actually smiled. Um, then we went into a studio into what can only be described as, yeah, a fairground ride. It was like a water course powered by V8 engines. Um, and it had different settings, you know, one to 10. The fastest that they tested it at was about seven. And it was, you know, the engines would burn out. And by the end of the week, we were screaming for it to be at 10 because it was so much fun. And there were, it was interesting because they would dump, you know, tons of water on top of us as well to sort of replicate the waterfall. Um, and then we were doing we were doing close up shots in sort of wheel what I call wheel barrels where you pedaled it with your own feet so you could kind of on dry land. But at every step of the way, it was so much fun to shoot. And I do think you can see that in the in the filming of it. I think although it looks treacherous, there's a certain glee from the dwarves which yeah. you really need because they're getting they're escaping. So just to move away from the Hobbit for a second, we're just looking at some of your early. Well, and actually, more recently than that, IMDb um, credits, and one of them is Miss Marple. Something called <clears throat> Ordeal, Ordeal by, by Innocence. Innocence. What the hell does that mean? I have no idea. I actually don't really know much about that particular story as well. I think I turned up, did my bits, and didn't read the rest of the script. But I was playing a wheel, I was in a wheelchair, yeah. I was play- which was a really interesting a really interesting thing to do with the director that really, she was amazing, but she didn't quite understand that wheelchairs don't go upstairs. And I remember being on set and there were, there were a few sort of small staircases because it was actually a real house that wasn't, it wasn't a, a, call it on set, it wasn't built. And she'd sort of say to me, okay, so you can come in through this door and kind of come down the corridor. And there were like a flight of stairs. And I'd say to her, um, I don't know how I'm quite going to do this. And she just didn't get it. So... Uh, it was it was all de- that was an ordeal by wheelchair. <laughs> so what did you do? How did you get out? I mean, I just stayed <laughs> at the bottom of the staircase, and I think I got out of the chair, put the pulled the chair to the top, and then carried on wheeling. And they just cut cut that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't do it then? What? It wasn't you. Uh, you committed the crime. It, uh, I think it was me. Actually, I ended. I know. I definitely. Sure you I definitely that. killed Lisa Stansfield, who was playing my wife. Um, and she refused to sing "Been Around the World" and I, I, I. Um, she just wouldn't sing it, and and um, so that I think that's why my character killed her. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I think any jury in the land would. You don't expect understand. Lisa Sansfield to turn up in a Marvel, though, do you? But it was glorious. It's really happened. All of that really happened. Yeah, that, oh, yeah, wow. yeah, really happened. It must be like a cheese dream. <laughs> Looking back, you haven't seen it, have you? You I, just looked at the credit. I did look at the credit. I know, You're going to go I watch can, it now, though. Yeah, aren't you? it's on YouTube, so we can watch that. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to just work out and I'm going to complain about your ability to go up and down stairs. Yeah, this magical wheelchair that floats. Yeah. Uh, we also, we do something called IMD Bunker sometimes because obviously lo- not all the information on there is accurate. So we'd like I'd to check. I'd say maybe 99% <laughs> of it is not accurate. But also, also possible. Um, is it true that you worked in the circus? That is true, as yeah. A young man? What was your speciality? I did a bit of everything actually, okay. but I was very, very good at throwing hula hoops to a Russian skateboarding girl. And then I didn't she do the skateboard. She hula hooped with like millions of hula hoops on a skateboard. It was it was in the eighties, so it was obviously quite. No, maybe it was early. No, it was eighties. Um, but yeah, I was throwing hula hoops. I wasn't a highly skilled circus artist at all. You didn't work with bears. No bears, but there were the remnants of some elephants. Not the remains. That, <laughs> that sounds pretty dark, doesn't it? Um, I think elephants slept somewhere because I could smell them the whole time. 
It's the bottom rung of show business, also known as the arsehole of show business. <laughs> this was in Budapest, is that in yeah. Hungary? Yeah. How did that come about? How did you end up in Hungary in the circus? I sort of wanted to be in show business and I'd been to a school and, you know, I needed an equity card so I could go to open auditions. And so the principal of that school, who's sadly passed on, got me a contract in this crazy circus and I got an equity card from it. So it all worked out in the end? It all worked out in the end. And then I think it was about 10 years later, I ended up back in Budapest shooting Robin Hood and went to visit the circus. And uh, yeah, lots of memories came flooding back. <laughs> was anybody still there that you knew? No, but the circus, is, is a, it's oh. a permanent stone building. So uh, yeah, it was very strange going back. I also wanted to ask, is it true that you're named after Richard III? That is true, yes. My father was really into the history of the Plantagenets. Um, and I was born on 22nd of August, which is the Battle of Bosworth Field, when Richard died on the battlefield. I was always a bit mad at my dad because for naming me after what was perceived to be a hunchback hmm. child murderer. Um, but then in later years, I just developed an, a similar interest in the story because we used to visit there every, every year on my birthday. Thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> That was my birthday treat to go and just look at an empty field. But yeah, it, and then in recent months, his remains have been found. So it's all kind of coming to the surface again. Quite literally. Literally. When you said you, you began to share his interest, I was worried you meant the child murdering in the hunchback. No, room, although, no, 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 <laughs> no, definitely not that. Although, but the fascination with the, the sort of unsolved crime, I did become kind of interested in not necessarily resurrecting his... Um, heroicism but just looking at the story again because he was our last monarch that died on a battlefield and it's interesting how I'm sort of playing a character that's not dissimilar to him in Thorin so I was using a bit of that you know character in, in Thorin yeah do you have yourself in Lego I do and what's really good is I've, I've seen the second movie Lego which is Thorin stripped of his uh, after the uh, out of the, the elven dungeons where they get all of their clothes stripped off of them. So he's in, it's not a naked Lego, oh. but he's in just <laughs> just a sort of skinny little shift, if you can call that, if you can imagine that in Lego. Are you pretty buff in Lego? Yeah, I mean, quite square-shouldered. And your head rotates like <laughs> 360. It does, it does yeah. That's Christmas day. I can actually of. do that, though. If, shall, I, shall I show you? Do it. Hang on, okay, here we go. <laughs> he's doing it. Oh, my God. <laughs> And back around the other side. Incredible. The circus. Um, Thank you very much for talking to us today. You're welcome. Best of luck with it. Thanks. That is it for this week's Empire Podcast. How was he, Helen, by the way? Is he good? He was lovely. Yeah, Yeah, lovely. That is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Join us next week for the very last podcast of the year. Ah. Oh. Apart from the other ones, but yeah. The podcast proper, the one that, you know, this one. The one that's out every Friday, not the specials that we chain you to your desk and make you do. <laughs> Those ones. Uh, well, we'll be joined by another triple whammy of guests. And I don't know if you noticed the use of the word triple there. Uh, from Anchorman 2, the legend continues. We'll have Adam McKay, the writer and director, and Judd Apatow, the producer. There's also J.C. Chandor, director of the brilliant All Is Lost, and David O. Russell, here to talk about his new movie, American Hustle. Russell Hustle. That rhymes. It does rhyme, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, so how's that for an early Christmas present? That is something to keep you going over the holidays. And that won't be all, of course. Don't forget to look out for the Hobbit Spoiler Special next week. And then just after Christmas, our review of the year mega podcast, which should be a lot of fun. So until next week, it's goodbye from Helen. Tiddly. Goodbye from Ali. Bye. It's goodbye from Phil. Enjoy it. Sorry. Goodbye. It's enjoy this. Enjoy this. Sorry. Goodbye.
And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to get a hug from Phil. See you next week. Bye. Come here, you big kid. No! No! Oh.